you like, <clears throat> please join me in a very brief chant. It's a verse that's uh, read and reflected on or chanted before uh, the study of a sutra or sutta. <clears throat> I'll chant it first and then you can follow me. It's very simple. The Dharma is deep and lovely. The Dharma is deep and lovely. We now have a chance to see it. We now have a chance to study it and practice it. We vow to realize its true meaning. We vow to realize its true meaning. There's a a teaching story from ancient India having to do with the breath. There was a conference of all the senses and the breath. They all came together with lots of people. But then there was the question as to who would preside, who would be in charge. And they started competing with each other. First sight took over and started to just create incredible visions, beautiful colors and forms, just spun out these magnificent forms and colors that captured everyone's attention. Everyone was quite impressed. But then sound jumped in and played extraordinary music, just sounds that people were just sobbing from the music. It was so beautiful. Smell didn't want to be undone, outdone. And there were these aromas that were just... Uh, beyond belief. People were just so happy to breathe these aromas in. Taste got into it. Concocted extraordinary tastes. People made meals that people couldn't believe. To be followed by touch. Celestial massage. And then Breath said, but I want to lead. And everyone just fell over laughing, all the other senses. Just, these are so colorful and they just, you're just such a bore. You know, it's just, what do you have to offer? Why should you lead? You've just seen what we can do. There's nothing uh, like that that's possible for you. And they just disregarded the Breath. And they started, still kept struggling with each other, who should be in charge, and they were quite involved. And so the breath, rather dejected and sad, feeling rejected, just started to slowly walk away and leave the conference. 
And little by little, each sense started to fall away. It started to get weaker and weaker. The colors were no longer vivid and the taste started to drop away. And uh, they all quickly ran after the breath, begged the breath to come back. I said, well, we realize that you're the foundation for it all. We really need you. So the breath came back and led the conference. So what? What does that have to do with us in this sutra? If you recall, we left off... Yesterday, we were dealing with doggy mind, a mind that is uh, enslaved to objects. And in our practice, we set the breath as the primary object to practice. And despite all our good intentions, uh, the mind has a mind of its own and goes wherever it wants to go. And often it's not the breath, as we all know. And we mentioned some ways to weaken the power of some of these bones and how to strengthen the attractiveness of the breath. Of course, the main way to strengthen the attractiveness of the breath uh, is when we begin to, to, to get fruit from the practice. By paying attention to the breathing, we begin to experience something tangible, palpable, actual. Uh, at that point, faith is no longer so important. And the breath proves itself to be something worthy of our best attention. As an act of intelligence, we uh, give it our attention. But on the way to uh, fully convincing ourselves, because just the Buddha saying so or someone else saying so isn't enough, it can give you some faith to launch the practice. But perhaps it's a while before you really know uh, and want to of your own, not as a drill or as duty or being an obedient yogi, but on your own, just really see the joy and want to follow the breath. Just enjoy doing it. You can reflect. You can reflect on the breath, just as it, that's why I mentioned the story. The breath is so unassuming. And unless we have a problem with it, we take it for granted. And yet, as we know, it's life itself. The breath comes in and life is set in motion. Uh, a baby becomes a person, starts to become a person. And when we breathe out and don't breathe in again, it's called death. So this is a very powerful force that we're, as an object that we've picked. I mean, you could see it as kind of uh, an exercise in concentration. Yes, we'll just concentrate on the breathing. But please, from time to time, especially if you're feeling routine about the practice or bored, uh, reflect on what it is that you're meditating on when you meditate on the breath. That is, what we're meditating on is something which, if, if it weren't there, there would be no one to meditate. So, um, sometimes that kind of reflection can wake us up on the way to uh, experiencing the wonder of, of breathing. Not as an ideology, not as a, uh, someone else's belief, but for ourselves. Okay, um, what I'd like to do today is, uh, if you recall, we left off, I think, doggy mind was well enough established. We all have a sense of what that is. And 
based on the groups and the notes, I'm sure we all know what doggy mind is. Uh, but then the process of the doggy mind evolving and becoming lion mind. Um, <clears throat> what I would like to do is to look at uh, the first six contemplations of the Anapanasati uh, Sutta, the, the teaching of the Buddha on the full awareness of breathing, and sketch out. They're very rich, these six. Much more time um, could be devoted to them, particularly the first four on the body in terms of what we're doing here. But I hope I can at least uh, give you some sense of the basis for the practice we're doing. That is, Corrado and I didn't make it up by corresponding between Italy and Brooklyn or Cambridge. (laughs) We're just trying to be, we're messengers. We're just trying to be as accurate as we can. Let me read to you a little bit from the sutta itself. O monks, the method of being fully aware of breathing, if developed and practiced continuously, will have great rewards and bring great advantages. It will lead to success in practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. If the method of the four establishments of mindfulness four foundations of mindfulness, is developed and practiced continuously. It will lead to success in the practice of the seven factors of of awakening. The seven factors of awakening, if developed and practiced continuously, will give rise to understanding and liberation of the mind. The sutra is about liberation, using the breath as the main thread. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit. The Buddha answers. And now the sutta, the practice part of the sutta begins. It is like this, yogis. The meditator goes into the forest or to the foot of, of a tree or to any deserted place and sits stably in the lotus position, holding the body quite straight, breathing in, He or she knows that he or she is breathing in. And breathing out, he or she knows that he or she is breathing out. Okay, we haven't gotten to the first contemplation yet. This is just the preliminary part, and it's already a huge amount that's been said. To know that you're breathing in and to know that you're breathing out. What I'd like to suggest that uh, one of the important aspects of the development that I would try to, I'll try to sketch out tonight has to do with what the ancients called acquiring a seat, S-E-A-T, acquiring a seat. Okay, all of us have a seat right now. We're all on, on a chair or a cushion or a bench. But acquiring a seat is something else. Anyone can plop their butt down on a cushion. Acquiring a seat is something that uh, has a lot of the mind in it. Finally, it's largely about the mind, but it certainly includes the body. And what it is, is developing a kind of stability that's like the throne that a lion sits on. And that comes, as you'll see, I hope, from the development of these contemplations of breathing. 
Many things contribute to acquiring a seat where there's such a strength in the sitting that we can face anything. That's the point. We're not just trying to imitate a line or uh, set some Olympic record for following the breath continuously. It's about establishing a level of stability that can look our suffering, even the deepest suffering. Finally, death, which we all face inevitably. Facing that directly. And so it's a training. And I can write in the sutra when it begins to talk about, let's say, posture. Don't be put off by it saying, uh, sitting in the lotus position, full lotus, because then you feel, well, I'm eliminated right from the start. <laughs> it's helpful if you can sit in the full lotus position. But the kind of acquiring a seat that I'm referring to really doesn't have so much to do with a particular posture. Or to put it another way, is for the mind to enter into the full lotus. You can, there are many gymnasts and hatha yogis who can get into the full lotus or very flexible people. So what? It doesn't necessarily bring liberation, wisdom, compassion. Not really. It just means you can sit comfortably and stably. The beginnings of that. So right from the outset, it says, breathing in, the yogi knows uh, that the breath is coming in and out. Before we even get to the sitting posture, this is where, and we're indebted to a very rich literature, commentators, meditators since the time of the Buddha, who kind of filled in uh, the sense of what is meant by some of this. Uh, step number one is just to know that we're breathing in and breathing out. We began Friday night with that. Uh, of course, just that alone can take you all the way to enlightenment. To just know that you're breathing in and breathing out. Uh, especially as you begin to understand the sutra as it unfolds. However, to begin with, the foundation is based. Before we even start on the 16 contemplations, we're given the basis for each and every one of them. It's the simple fact that we breathe in and breathe out. What could be simpler, more obvious? But it's also, and here's an important aspect for the retreat, which I feel we should go into in some detail now, a little bit. That's the mandate. Uh, this whole area and the, the first and second contemplation on long and short breathing, which we'll get to, which has to do with being aware of the breathing at all times. That is, Anapanasati is not limited to the formal sitting practice or formal walking. It's something that's meant to be done all the time. Let me bring that into the context of this retreat. I don't mean to uh, make you get paranoid or anything, but my window just happens to be facing the walkway where the main entrance is. And so almost any time I sit down to have a cup of tea or just whatever I do, there's somebody practicing, sometimes practicing in quotes. Let me tell you what I see. Now, of course, maybe you're just so advanced that while you're doing what I describe, uh, you're totally attentive. What I see is not everyone, but lots of us. We're outside and it's still the dog runs after the bone. We sort of, we sort of kind of want to get concentrated. 
And so we're trying to accomplish quite a few things. We're trying to be outside to get some sunshine. It's like a real bargain that we're trying for. We want a suntan. We want to look at, hear all the beautiful birds and see them. Look at all the greenery. Experience the fresh air of being in the country. And in addition, be totally concentrated on our breathing and walking. Okay. We're divided there. We have to make up our mind. Now, uh, it's okay to go outside. It's fine, but unfortunately, uh, you may have to give up something. There may have to be a, uh, a certain amount of renunciation. I mean, there are better places to get a suntan, better places to, uh, to enjoy that. And obviously, I'm not against nature. What I'm trying to get at is that the practice, uh, don't mistake the instructions that we give where we encourage you to be gentle and light about practicing to mean uh, you just um, just kind of trot around the place. In other words, some of the walking just seems to be just, you know, just sauntering around a nice day in the country. Uh, what the, uh, what the, the teaching is that we're attempting to put forward uh, requires that we begin to, to learn how to stay attentive from moment to moment uh, and to use the breath to help us attempt to do that. Now, if when you're outside doing the formal walking meditation and if you haven't resolved that, what's going to happen is there'll be like three or four steps of walking meditation. Then they'll be examining the chipmunks. Then there'll be two or three steps of walking meditation, noticing the cloud formation. Five or six steps of walking meditation, noticing the socks that the other person is wearing. (laughs) Okay. Okay, you understand what I'm... I don't mean to be a, a hard guy or anything, but we have an unusual opportunity here to practice and um, to accomplish something here which can be taken back home and be invaluable. Let me be much more exact on that. When Corrado suggested that we slow down, uh, that's a lot of that is to help us rem- help us use the breathing to stay in touch with what we're doing. So the sutra itself is suggesting to use the in-breath and the out-breath throughout the day. Uh, Being in touch with the breathing, helping us to stay in the present moment. Helping us to stay in the present moment as we get dressed. Helping us to stay in the present moment as we scrub down the table or mop the floor or vacuum. Helping us to stay in the present moment as we eat. Helping us to stay in the present moment as we open a door and close a door. Helping us to stay in the present moment as we have a cup of tea. So the day is made up of lots of little pieces. And of course we're going to forget a good deal of the time, maybe most of the time. But perhaps if we understand why we're undertaking this, uh, there'll be more of an incentive not to tighten up and become rigid and grim. We're trying to Uh, We're walking a thin line in the teaching. We're trying to keep it light and joyful, gentle, to honor all kinds of human differences, not to kind of standardize you all and just put you through one mold. Not at all. We're trying to, to do that with a large group. But there's a thin line where on both sides it can either deteriorate where it becomes very grim and serious and determined a joyless, joyless effort 
perhaps heroic, but also joyless. The other extreme, it becomes casual and there there isn't enough um, intention, there isn't enough attention for the practice to really pick up momentum, to really grow and develop. Now, if you can, this is a, prote- a protected environment. Our life is dramatically simplified here. Delicious food made for us, everything. is. We have a little job once a day. If we can begin to learn how to be alert in all the things that we do, it's not in addition to the formal practice. Formal practice is easier for all of us. But if we can begin to bring conscious breathing as well as, as mindfulness, they work together, that's what it's about really, into whatever it is we're doing, just walking from here to there, standing and waiting for something. Uh, in short, uniting conscious breathing with whatever the activity is. If we can begin to learn to do that, when you go home, uh, the gap that often exists between retreat life and life in New York City or wherever you come from won't be as great. You won't suffer as much of a shock, as you know, many people suffer, uh, from what goes on here compared to what goes on where we go back to. So that what we're attempting to do is to begin to develop a foundation of mindfulness so that more and more mindfulness becomes not so much a method but a way of living. It's the art of living mindfully. Uh, That's the key to, to our whole practice. It's the whole art of being happy. So what I would encourage you to do is to more and more come back to that understanding we're going to be getting to concentration. That's what we're, we're on because doggy mind is a mind that can't concentrate. It's just vulnerable. It's helpless. It just runs after what anyone throws. Lion mind is steady. We call that samadhi when the mind can stick to an object. But samadhi is not only developed in the sitting posture or in formal walking. Samadhi can be developed washing the dishes. Samadhi can be developed mopping the floor here. Samadhi can be developed making your bed. In short, whatever your life is in that moment, if you can enter into it, it's not a kind of detached looking at it uh, from a distance uh, and noticing what you're doing. It's fully entering into what you're doing with wakefulness. Immersing yourself in the activity with, with wakefulness. Now, to begin with, not only does that begin to develop concentration, but it's the beginning of actually moving into something quite profound. Uh, The ancient Chinese had a very nice phrase, kind of a deeper meaning, a subtle meaning of the first precept of not to kill. And they talked about uh, killing life and giving life to life. But they didn't mean about killing a person or an animal. What they were referring to is in a given moment, and each moment is our life, whatever it is you're doing, if you're divided, you've just killed life. That is, if while you're mopping the floor, you're thinking about uh, going and getting some tea and relaxing in the library and whatever, in that moment, which is a a real moment in our life, we've divided ourselves. The body is one place, the mind is someplace else. And so they refer to that as killing life. Put the other way, giving life to life is, uh, let's say if you're having a cup of tea and you're fully absorbed in the tea, you're really tasting the tea, that's called giving life to life. 
So you can see what it's the beginnings of. It's the beginnings of uh, uh, the development of infinite respect for life itself. Our life, of course, that brings everyone else into it because we begin to expect respect the quality of our life. Then when others enter into our space, more so in certain ways when we get back, then our life is transformed. Put still another way, whatever we encounter is our life in that moment. No matter how humble, no matter how ordinary, that is our life in, in that moment. Yet we tend to focus on only the dramatic things that make up a day, either where, where things went very wrong or, or went well. But our practice is to more to forget, to, to enter into forgetfulness, to come back and wake up. To enter into forgetfulness, to wake up. Over and over again, until it becomes smooth, it becomes uh, like breathing for us. And it can be done with a light heart, gently. And a sense of humor is absolutely essential because we forget to do it most of the time. I know that. We all know that. So it's more if we as a community, we're a temporary community here, Sangha, practicing together. If we all do that, we all strengthen each other's possibilities. The remaining days can be even more rich. If we start getting casual and try to do two and three things, and it's all too human to want to enjoy the beautiful weather outside. I mean, I understand. I want to as well. And you can even enjoy it, uh, but be clear as to what you're doing. For example, a few days ago I mentioned if you're taking a natural walk, let's say around the loop, and you should see uh, some uh, tree or a bird or something that interests you, uh, rather than um, get divided, or is that what I would suggest is try to be really inside yourself as you walk, being with the breathing as you walk. Come to a halt and give yourself over to that object. Let's say there's a bird chirped on a, uh, perched on a, on a branch. What you can do is now stop walking and aim your full attention to the bird, staying in touch with the breathing. What that does, especially as it becomes easier to do it, is that unnecessary thinking becomes less and less. We slip into forgetfulness less and less. When it becomes something uh, mature, the mind is very clear and there's just bird. You can really see the bird. You can really hear the bird uh, in a way that's not possible through, the, through a busy mind. There's some joy, but when the mind becomes really quiet and the breath can help that, that can be maybe five seconds where you pause and you really look at it while breathing. Uh, that's practice. That's very good practice. So I'm not even telling you not to contemplate nature. If you're going to contemplate nature, then really do it. Contemplate nature. Take it in and give yourself over to it. Now, more and more as we develop this attitude towards relating to activities this way, this is developing lion mind in action, there are times when it becomes so natural and so deep that what happens is when we do something, we disappear in the act of doing it. Uh, that means uh, the big troublemaker, Larry, disappears, and you have your own. What happens is we fully enter into the activity and we leave behind the self-consciousness and the preoccupation with how I'm doing and how I look and how, I, how people see me and uh, am I doing it right and uh, all of that stuff. So we're beginning to learn that. Also, when we get home, to be a yogi uh, is not someone who kind of uh, shrinks away from life 
Remember, we're not monks and nuns. We are people in the world, one way or another. So we need a practice that has dignity, that, ha- that, has, uh, that is powerful, that fits the conditions of our life where we live in families, we go to universities, we have jobs, we have children, we're busy, we drive cars, we do a lot of things that the monks at the time of the Buddha didn't do. So if our practice makes us bigger misfits than before we started to practice, I would say, what is the point of us being here? So it's not to kind of crawl away and just get quiet in specialized postures and special rooms at special places here and in Asia. Those are, these are just stage props, beautiful, ingenious ones that have existed for thousands of years. IMS is a stage prop. It's a dramaturgical accomplishment, especially if you fall for it. I hope you do. Because if you fall for it, then it will help you get on with developing qualities that are independent of conditions, of whether you have the right setting with a Buddha, you know, and incense and all the rest, where, uh, where the Buddha is everywhere, where practice is everywhere. So that if you take this opportunity in such a congenial, in its own way, I know that there's suffering, we all have problems, but I think it's safe to say that we're all supporting each other. We're here for the same reason, and we're all doing our best. Uh, The degree to which this kind of um, concentration or samadhi gets expressed in your work situation here, everything I'm talking about, daily life here, um, can spill over and help you be more competent at your job. There's no reason why a meditator has to be a space cadet. That doesn't follow. That to me is not... Buddha was not trying to turn out a space cadet factory, you know, where people can only be uh, calm and happy under very precious special conditions and then are helpless when thrown out into the world. I don't think so. And so we have this wonderful opportunity here to to move towards that uh, stability of mind slowly, gently, gradually with the help of our friends. So please try to bring that kind of remembering into your practice. And when it's time to do formal walking, uh, remember that that's what you're doing and and do that. When uh, you want to stop and reflect on nature, do that. When it's time to sit, sit. You've heard all this in little Zen books, right? Okay, now it's our opportunity to do it. Not just read Zen poems. Zen tradition is excellent in giving us very aesthetic and short statements of, of all this. But it's all in the Buddha. It's not new. So please, let's see if we can all, if we all start moving in that direction, each and every one of us benefits from it. If you go outside and everyone is really practicing in the way in which I'm suggesting, not with veins popping out of necks and joy, you know, that's not it. Gentleness doesn't mean casual. That's not what, gentleness means relax. You can be mindful and relax. In fact, you can be more mindful. Ease into it. Okay, sermon's over. Let's move now through. You can see why 10 minutes was not enough for me to comment on that (laughs) poem. Breathing in a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a long breath. (coughs) 
breathing out a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a short breath. These are the first two contemplations of the 16. The long and the short of it (laughs) is that uh, whether the breathing is, is long or short is one of the easiest things to notice for all of us. With a little bit of practice, we can all notice uh, long might mean that, let's say you're paying attention at the nose. Many of us are. As you're doing that, we're not like uh, drawing a tight circle around the nostrils. It's more rather uh, a broad, open attentiveness to the area of the nostrils if that's where you're attending. You can't help but notice if the breathing starts becoming deeper because you feel the abdomen start to expand. You feel the chest follow after that and expand. Perhaps you feel sensations on the side and the back. As it becomes deeper and more full, uh, you know it's in a totally different way of breathing. The body literally fills up and then the body empties. When the Buddha talks about long and short, that's an image used for the quality of the breath. And so the length of the breath covers all the other qualities that have been mentioned a few times during the guided parts of our meditation. Is the breath subtle or coarse? Is the breath... uh, Is the breath soft or hard? Is the breath kind of smooth or bumpy? Does the breath enter and exit freely or does it seem to have to fight its way in and out? The differences between the in-breath and the out-breath, the way the ending of breaths happen, do they just drop off or do they end, uh, just fade away? And other qualities that perhaps we don't even have words for. And it's not necessary to have any words at all. It's more to become sensitive to the realm of the breathing. So that in one and two, what we're beginning to do is to develop the capacity to attend to the breath. Here, two uh, notions are very, very important, and you'll see when we open the field up to do the Vipassana work, how important they are. Uh, Step number one is what is called Vitaka. That is uh, a Pali word which uh, is sometimes... Since I, don't, I think the translations are not so hot, I'm just going to tell you what Vitaka does. That's the um, ability, or that's the function of aiming and taking the attention to the object. That's the ability to aim the mind and then take the attention to the object, in this case, the breath. If you don't have an aim to go to the breath, uh, you won't go to the breath. Your mind will go somewhere else. If that aim is quite clear and strong, then whenever the mind wanders, there's something in us that takes up the the attention and it aims at the breath and it brings it right to it. In other words, our attention has to be delivered to the breathing so that vichara, the next term, very important, they work together. Vichara is sometimes translated as investigation. It's okay as a term, but it has a lot of connotations of thinking for us, analytic work, and it doesn't mean that. It just means a rubbing up against the object that is coming in touch, in this case, with the breath. So step number one, there's a a function, 
that aims the attention to the object, brings it to it. And then once we come to the breath, it's a matter of sticking to it. We've gotten there, but then more and more, we have to learn how to anchor our attention in the object. How to touch, rub up against, penetrate, drop into the object. Now, this simple partnership between coming to the object and then sticking to it and going into it is, of course, the basis out of which wisdom comes. Unless we can uh, take hold of a reality, I don't mean get attached to, I mean unless we can come to what it is, unless we can bring mindfulness to something, how can we contemplate it? How can wisdom develop? The wisdom we're talking about is not thinking wisdom. Oh, that's useful too. The wisdom we're talking about, the insight we're talking about, comes out of the direct penetration of an object. It's something that you see. It's intimate. It's very alive. We have words about it. We call it impermanence. We call it anatta, emptiness of self. We have to use words, but that's nothing. It's dead compared to the subtlety as the mind gets more and more calm and steady as it begins to penetrate an object and to understand what a person is. What, what is identity? What is a physical pain? What is anything? What's a sound? So you can see we're laying the groundwork for very important work that'll, that, that will grow out of it the work of wisdom, which needs a mind that can come to aspects of ourself, stay to them so we can look deeply. Okay, now right now we're beginning with the breath and we're seeing, is the breath longer or is it short? Uh, what kind of quality does it have? Relatively, not so controversial, not so highly charged for most of us. But the quality that we're developing on the breath if we get off to the right start and develop these qualities, then that enables the mind to be fit. It enables the mind to be fit to then look into the states of fear and anger and all the very powerful things that many of us have been visited by on this retreat. Can the mind be that stable? Can it acquire a seat? Can it be seated like a lion? So that even though terror comes up or despair, we're quite capable of looking into it deeply into it and seeing its true nature. The liberation comes from that. So in a way, we've, we've said there's a lot that the Buddha has said already and we've hardly begun. Okay. Um, while you're noticing the, the length of the breath and the quality of the breath, part of the education or re-education that comes along Uh, comes along at this uh, with these first two steps. You can't help but notice the conditions which cause the breath to become deeper and the conditions which cause the breath to become shallow. It's not that you should be thinking about it, but perhaps you've already seen that when you're able to be continuously mindful, let's say relatively, let's say you're with 15 breaths in, out, in, out, perhaps you begin to notice that without trying to make the breathing deeper, the breath becomes deeper naturally. That's really the main point. We're not trying to control the breath. We're just making the breath conscious. And in the process of making the breath conscious, the mind becomes quieter. It stops thinking when we're attentive. When it stops thinking, the breath can begin to assume its natural urge, which is to be deep and full. Those lungs are there to be filled up. The fact that we don't, that they're compromised, 
is something that has to do with practice. And perhaps you've also noted something like this. You're very still. The mind is pretty still. It's calm. The breath is deep and easy and pleasant. It's a great joy to breathe. And suddenly one negative thought about your boss or your, your partner. Or so, one thought, one word sometimes. And suddenly the whole house of cards collapses. And what was a deep, smooth breath becomes choppy and short and agitated. Perhaps you've begun to notice in a small way, even though that's not the main task of these first two contemplations, that as the breath becomes subtle and refined and has some depth, that the body starts to become more calm as well. And the mind too. That the breathing, the way the breath is, has a lot to do with the way the body is. So that the the calming of the breathing uh, brings the body along with it. The breath brings the body along with it. Okay, I think our journey into a, a lion status is going to take us a little longer than I thought uh, to be continued. Yeah, I think we have enough to work with for a while. Yeah. Can we have a moment's uh, stillness? If I could uh, speak for Corrado and myself at the risk of implicating him in something, but I'm pretty sure I could say certain that what we're what we're looking for, <laughs> at least publicly, we have to agree. Uh, what we're looking for, us too, you know, it's a challenge for us as well to try and teach this with so many people, and even if it weren't a lot of people, it's not easy. Uh, the best word I can come up with it come up with is joyous effort. Uh, anything worthwhile in life requires effort. As one uh, person told me many years ago, there's no free lunch in the universe. No, I, that's definitely true. I found that out. Uh, so that, of course, effort is needed in our practice. And, and we're working on the hardest thing there is to work on ourselves. Yet, does it have to be done in a kind of grim, uh, tortured, almost brutal, um, harsh way? It is when there's lots of ego in it, lots of striving, lots of uh, self-negation. Uh, uh, when we, uh, we think we're just an awful person, but if we practice hard, we'll become a wonderful person. That isn't the attitude that we're attempting to slowly uh, help us all learn to bring into action. It's more uh, the appreciation of the moment. It's more the appreciation of life as expressed in this moment, in this moment, this breath. You know, just one inhalation, one exhalation can, they can, can bring conscious inhalation and exhalation, can bring contentment. 
it can bring a certain humility because you understand that the building blocks of mindfulness are hap- that's the way it happens. Sometimes it's dramatic, you have a breakthrough, but much of Dharma work is blue collar all the way. <laughs> you know, it's a breath here and a breath there, a few moments of mindfulness here, a few moments of mindfulness there. Vast spaces of unawareness. And then we, we come back. So what we're attempting to do is a balance between uh, keeping our work together light and joyful and yet not forgetting why we're here. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.